in a lot of cases, we've been pushing those visionaries away as soon as they have an idea that starts working. And then we build systems and procedures, and then we put some type of business manager that will implement and execute some of those uh, systems and procedures. And that can make the business extremely successful um, because it just amplifies a system that is already working. At the same time, uh, what's missing is the vision and the creativity of the visionary. So if you look at companies that have that, one of the most famous ones, of course, is Apple. Steve Jobs was, he was a visionary. And visionaries, people, I understand from the business perspective, can be really annoying uh, because they, they're going to break the systems, they're going to break the procedures, and they're going to do something different. But Apple wouldn't be, I don't know, I think it's close to, close to a trillion company. Apple wouldn't be Apple because they had a good system. They had a very good visionary. Today, Erics and I are chatting to Philippe Guijard, who helps entrepreneurs innovate ideas into highly desirable and profitable products. During his 25 years as an award-winning international industrial designer, he's helped clients generate over $200 million in revenue. As a holistic designer, he recognizes that an innovative product is only part of the successful business story. He specializes in designing thoughtful and profitable products that form part of an integrated marketing, engineering, manufacturing and business model solution. Welcome to the Engage to Innovate podcast. Hi, I'm Judy Selmans. You know, our world evolves through innovation and as business leaders, we have to step out of our comfort zone, which is never easy heading into totally new territory. But this podcast is all about helping you tackle that adventure. We talk to people who have done it before and those who have worked with innovators. So let's get started on our next journey of discovery. Welcome to our stage, Philippe. It's lovely to have you with us. I'm super happy to be here with you today. No, I've just had a listen to your t- TED Talk, actually, and I really enjoyed it. In fact, it brought a little tear to my it eye. But very we'll, powerful. Yeah, it was lovely, lovely, lovely story. Uh, and we'll, so, we, you know, we'll get in maybe in how you got to that at some stage. But I was, I'm fascinated by where we're at with COVID right at the moment and the things that we're noticing in what we do of a change of global attitude. And I'm really keen to talk to you and learn more about from your perspective, how is this mindset changing? And and we've been going there for a long time with climate change, et cetera, but how has this accelerated our thinking now? There's so much to in, uh, unpack here. So where do I start? I'm not too sure. Um, maybe I'll start by what I've been observing since uh, COVID hit um, Australia, for example. Um, I work mainly with entrepreneurs and, and um, CEOs of companies and, you know, that type of people. And I've noticed that um, I had, if I draw kind of a very black and white picture of the situation, I had two type of uh, reactions. One was based on fear, uh, and the reaction was, okay, we cannot continue the work, uh, can't innovate at this time. This is too challenging, too dangerous, and we need to pack everything and go and survive. And, and you know, so that was one yeah. mindset. 
And um, as a consequence, as a, you know, a consultant in the design industry, I've lost a couple of projects. And I had other entrepreneurs uh, coming to me and say, okay, uh, this is a fantastic, fantastic time to innovate um, and do you know, uh, new products and new services um, because the world is changing. So the needs are going to be different. So we're mm. going to keep our pulse on the, on the market, see what the market needs. We're going to um, innovate and design new products and then we'll adjust along the way. And when things will pick up, because they will pick up, we'll be ready and we take the markets. Yep. And I find that, I don't know, I have no words for that, but I find that so interesting, this, the, just the different of mindset. And, and it's nothing to do with, with the industry and nothing to do with the size of the company or the previous success of the entrepreneur. If the state of mind is fear, then they go nowhere. And yeah. I even fear for their future because they, they, you know, shut down some marketing expenses and all the yep. innovation and everything. And it doesn't look really good on paper. Um, short term, maybe okay. Long term, I'm really not sure. And other really take that as a joyful opportunity. So I find that really intriguing. It's interesting because I've, you know, through this podcast, I've interviewed others that are, you know, into even things like mindfulness training and breathing and all of those sorts of things. And it is a mindset. You know, there are some who are, eternal optimists I guess maybe it's just is yeah that, that just get it and and you're right that I think though that most of us had a level of fear even if it was a personal level of fear to mm. some degree e- even now so in New Zealand of course we've been back to normal now for seems like ages in fact lockdown such a distant memory to us here we're mm. all back to normal and it's interesting because I've almost got to remember back of what it was like when the news first hit and we were in fact in another city in New Zealand at the time and there was this news flash comes on get back basically get back to your homes wherever you are in the next 40 hours eight hours is where you'll stay uh, you can't leave you know all this sort of urgency and yes there was this instant fear but then then you've got to ch- then it changes you know something mm-hmm. changes you either become an optimist or you stay in that fear place don't you yeah, I found that really interesting too. So th- th- again, there are so many things I would like to unpack. Uh, there's something around mindfulness I would like to go back to. Um, but uh, to address this specific um, event with COVID, I- I've seen around me a lot of people getting into fear. I mean, in Australia, they were hoarding toilet paper for some reason. It's a very primal, I guess, uh, yeah. reaction. Um, strangely enough, and maybe it's because I've did. De- I've been doing meditation practices for a long, long time. I didn't really experience fear. Uh, what I did experience is a change of context and situation. And like everyone, it's it can be challenging at times. You know, when you receive three or four phone calls in the in a same couple of days where clients cancel or postpone their mm. uh, projects, you start wondering, well, where is this all going uh, going on? So, yep. uh, they, but there's no they were not really f- fear. I think um, if I come back to the mindfulness practices, um, if you practice meditation, then you see things for what they are. And and it's not that you don't have emotions or reactions, but you have distance and space around them. So when fear kicks in, you say, oh, yeah, that's fear. And then you look at the situation and say, oh, yeah, this is happening. But then you don't dwell in that space. 
I think that's the beauty of it. You just don't dwell. You acknowledge it's happening, but you don't stay in space. And because I'm an entrepreneur and maybe a, a, a somehow a optimistic or, or crazy optimistic person, I, I, I will look for opportunities right away. It's like, okay, yeah. if this is changing, then, well, we probably need to design better product, different product, cheaper product, or product that have less function for a lesser price. So, oh, that's plenty of new opportunities for me and my business then. So it is just how you approach the situation, the context, and then within your own mind, um, if, you're, you know, if you're able to have some spaciousness or some distance with your own emotions and reactions. Mm. Would you say in your experience, Philippe, then to particularly for people who haven't experienced this level of, of, of pressure, because for, for many, uh, even you know, 2008 was a long time ago, mm. would you say then it's better to look forward because we won't be going back, that mm. there is no option but to look forward? Yeah, I mean, that's my, again, it, it it's all about mindset. We just mm. come back to this again. Um, if your mindset is to refuse change and you want things to go back as they were because you were comfortable and suddenly you're not comfortable anymore, mm. then you're really going to have a hard time because I'm not, I don't think things or life will come back to whatever normal, if normal was anything normal back then. So <laughs> I, I think you need to approach things with in space and, and optimism and pragmatism. Like it's it's all included in one same intent, I would say. Um, so I, I would just approach things in a, in a positive way because there, are, there will be positive outcomes of that. There's yeah. not a single crisis that happened in the world where there were not a positive outcome at the end. Hmm. So you can focus on the crisis and say, oh my God, we're all gonna die. Or you can focus on the outcome and work towards the outcome, which is much more a joyful experience anyway. Yeah. I think where a lot of businesses can get unstuck is that they've got into a comfort place. You know, they're, they're maybe not innovators by nature and they've, you know, they've got a good product. Whatever they do is something's working, clearly. The balance sheet proves that. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden this world-changing event has been thrusted upon them and they just they're, they're completely out of their comfort zone so they're not used to being in that innovative mindset and I think there's a key difference between an ultimately a business operator who is happy with where they are they maybe have been innovative when they first got into business but they're now just going with the flow and just daily daily literally but uh and and so it's it's that innovation mindset do you think that that's a different mindset as well yeah i was trying to make note as you were mentioning all that um <clears throat> I, I think there is a case for visionaries in business and uh, i think we've been in a lot of cases we've been pushing those visionaries away as soon as they have an idea that start working and then we build systems and procedures and then we put some type of business manager that will implement and execute some of those uh, systems and procedures. And that can make the business extremely successful um, because it just amplifies a system that is already working. At the same time, 
what's missing is the vision and the creativity of the visionary. So if you look at companies that have that, one of the most famous ones, of course, is Apple. Um, Steve Jobs was, maybe he was a character, but he, he was a visionary. So he was not doing stuff because um, there were a system that was working or there were a procedure that was well, and he would, he would put someone on their you know, um, feet and, and, and change things as they were going because he had a vision. Mm. And, and visionaries, people, I understand from the business perspective, can be really annoying uh, because they, <laughs> they're going to break the systems, they're going to break the procedures, and they're going to do something different. Yeah. But Apple wouldn't be, I don't know, I think it's close to, close to a trillion company. Uh, yeah. Apple wouldn't be Apple because they had a good system. They, they had a very yeah. good visionary. Yeah. Uh, Elon Musk, in, in some ways, he also a visionary in a different context. But yes. uh, he also has a vision, and we may agree or not agree with that. It doesn't matter at that stage. What is important is that we shouldn't push those people away from the business context because mm. there are those people in times of change or in times like COVID that can really help you shift your business, do things differently, and then try something different, try something new, and even thrive through the crisis. Is it fair to say then... That, and then you touched on this, this, this earlier that where the, the, the consumer's mindset is that that has certainly changed. Mm-hmm. That is it fair to say that if, if, if you're not actually keeping up with the change in people, you, you're actually going to get left behind? I would definitely agree. So there are a number of things that did happen and will have a continuous impact. The consumer mindset has changed. Some people have stayed home and experienced things differently. So even as an employee, for example, they have experienced being with their kid, going on bike ride with their kids and everything. And then they really wonder, oh, should I really go back to the office? Mm. And I have a few employees around me that really raise that question um, with me over the last few weeks. In terms of uh, positioning from the business to the, the customer, um, I think the experience is completely different. So the expectation of the customer from the buying perspective, like buying product or services, is different now than it was six months ago. So if you're in business and you're not paying attention to that, I think there's a big danger here because mm. you're missing a shift and you're missing a change. If you keep the communication with your customers and try to understand what are their new needs, um, there's a real opportunity for growth, actually, and serve them better and even have higher profit margin if you do the work well. Because I think a lot of people think that they can just guess what people are going to want and and then they, they miss that vital step of really understanding uh, those emotional, how we're feeling. It, do you see it? Do you see that sort of experience? Yeah, I see a, a number of business trying to just translate what they did into some kind of digital world of service and, and not paying much attention. Like it's very business oriented. Like how can I survive by pushing my stuff out there? Yeah. Uh, versus <clears throat> talking and engaging with their customers and understanding where they're at and what they need. And they may not need a full service and product anymore. They may need a fraction of it. 
but maybe a fraction is easier to go digital and maybe pro more profitable than the whole suite of services that you were offering before. So that's, um, yeah, th that's probably one way to, to think about it. So you come from this as an industrial designer's perspective. Mm. So how does that fit? What do you do to help entrepreneurs in, in that way? What is your connection with that? So I, I tend to work with serial entrepreneurs um, that have an idea and then want to execute that idea and turn that into a profitable product. In, in, in that context, again, what's the, the, the main difference between one and the other will be the mindset. So if they have the mindset of taking that change as an opportunity, then it's a real joy actually to work on, on those projects. It's, it's really mm. good fun. And because we're able to s simplify, I guess, the, the project and the products uh, in terms that are more um, resonating, I would say, with their customers. So that's, that's part of my work. So the, the, <clears throat> the work I do has uh, three main touch points, so to speak. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit of a, maybe a slightly unusual industrial designer because I've been working with startup for over 25 years and entrepreneurs with over 25 years. And um, I've developed a specific methodology for them. And this methodology will enclose, include the, the, the design, what I call design for function, which is, you know, if you need a teacup, well, you need to design a teacup that works as a teacup. Yeah. Um, it makes, makes sense, but, you know, some projects don't do that even too well. So it's wow. important that you address that first and make sure that works. But that's not enough. So there are two other pillars that I work with. Uh, one is marketing, understanding who you sell to and who is your audience and what are their value, what are their um, buying options, and you know, um, understand which uh, target audience you really need to um, to talk to to be successful. And the last bit is business model. So making sure that you know your numbers, but also you understand what the value proposition is from your brand, um, talking to the as a message to, the, to your market segment. And, mm -hmm. and you look back to the, and all that informs the design. So it's kind of a circular motion between design, marketing, and business until you get the balance right and, um, and, and launch the product. It's like a loop, isn't it? Rather than a ladder, because whatever the value proposition is has to be reflected in the design, particularly yes. if you're going to be different from your competitors as well and uh, then, then, then it probably goes around in circles like that definitely yeah yeah so the model is um, is actually circular that's that's exactly right so i, I usually introduce it as a three circles uh, you know so that people have a, a clear idea but then usually the last slide is that there are arrows in between all those circles because the design will inform the marketing, the marketing will inform the business model, and both marketing and business model will inform the design again. So it's a kind of a loop, yes. and sometimes you have to loop quite a number of times to get it right. Yes, no, 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 that, that makes perfect sense. And so that leads, I guess, into uh, what we're really excited about when you talk about people, planet, and profit. Hmm. So that's the so-called triple bottom line. Yes. Can mm -hmm. we talk a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so maybe in order to talk about that, I should um, give a, a tiny bit of a history about how, how I, I, I came into, um, into being and, and working with this. Yeah, I, I've been always fascinated by nature, uh, even since I was a kid. Uh, 
they, they were part of my life where I used to work in a, in a countryside near farms and everything. So that was, you know, quite interesting to see what was happening around me. And, um, and, and I was always interested in sustainability, even when I was as little as, you know, nine or 10. So when I started my business at the age of 22, one of the fir- very first thing I did is to talk about sustainability with my clients and train in um, sustainability from the design perspective and the, the you know, engineering perspective, so to speak. I, I remember one of the conversation I had with uh, one of my very early clients uh, we were designing a product together and um, we were not really at the prototype t- stage, but like mock-up and we were kind of going in the, in the right direction. And I mentioned to the CEO, so, you know, that would be good now if we have a look at the environmental impact of your product so that we can course correct and, yeah. uh, and maybe do something a bit better. And I remember the guy just turned to me and said, oh, you know, I'm here to do business. <laughs> yes. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, well, you know, you can probably do both. And but he said, so not interested. And yeah. about two weeks later, he came back to me and said, you know, I've been thinking about what you said. Um, I have two kids, so if I trash the planet with my products, what kind of world I'm going to leave to my kids? Can we have a look at this sustainability thing? Uh-huh. And then we started working on that. And at that time, there were not that many options in terms of material and recyclability and everything. So we couldn't go as far as we wanted to, but we did a few things. So I've been advocating for sustainability for a long, long time. Well done. But what, what I was, so I, I had this very high interest in business from the very first day. So, you know, studying marketing, understanding the impact that has on, on the design process. And I included sustainability as soon as I could. And I've noticed that something that was missing along the line was, was the social impact of, um, of every design decision that you make. Mm. So the social impact for me is how do you impact people in the ecosystem that you build when you design and build and manufacture and sell a product? And if you really look at the whole ecosystem, that includes quite a number of people. If you look at the suppliers and the second and third tier suppliers, that's, you know, you start gathering uh, qu- quite a few um, people in your ecosystem. And I was trying to find how, is there a way to add value from the human perspective in that context? And um, and sometimes it's a bit hard because some of the suppliers, for example, or, or clients didn't quite understand where I was heading to. Mm. Um, but now I'm still it feels still like early days for me in that uh, conversation, but I still promote the triple bottom line in every conversation. Surely we're finally getting this though. I mean, this is, I've been involved in the environmental sector myself for not, not anywhere near as long as you and, and many others that I've worked with, but for at least the last 20 years. And I, and I have friends who have been working in this field since the early 70s and mm-hmm. it feels to them they feel like they're still, we're still learning, but I would like to think that maybe we're a little bit closer. Do you uh, think we are? Yeah, I think we are. Well, I can tell you that um, now if I have a conversation with the CEO regarding the project and I mentioned sustainability, I don't have to explain myself for half an hour on what That's it is. That's a start. So that's a very good thing. So it's already out there. Uh, the positive social impact sometimes is viewed as a kind of a maybe wishy-washy type of thing. Mm. But actually, 
in my experience and the way I see that with uh, my own project I've been going through that, it's actually a fantastic opportunity and builds very strong relationship with your ecosystem. So when you need something from them, uh, usually because of the relationship and the trust and the impact you've been building, you, you have a much healthier relationship with them and then you have usually greater and better results. I'm I'm actually quite interested by the social impact because I think that that is, uh, and and I almost feel like again that COVID is maybe exposing us to the implications of this and that we're seeing those that don't have access to healthcare or yeah. hygiene etc that are suffering more. Do you think that's having an influence on the way we're going to think about this from a business perspective? I am an optimist, so I would say, yeah. uh, yes, it will have an influence. Um, the, the question is, how can we, in our daily work, uh, influence that? So my work as a designer will be to find people in the ecosystem that I can influence and partner with. So, for example, if we have I don't know, a supplier in Asia, then we'll try to see how we can have an exchange of value, which is not just the transactional aspect of um, the business that, uh, you know, like if it's a supplier, we buy supplies from them. Um, yeah. But maybe, you know, they live in a place where, you know, there's a school and the school needs a couple of things. And for the business here in Australia, it's very easy to get access to those things, like pen and papers or books, yeah. and send that over there. And that has a tremendous positive impact. And it doesn't cost the company much, if anything. And, uh, and it's really good value for... Um, the ecosystem and the suppliers over there. So that's the type of thing that I like to uh, to work with. Um, I, I love that other, you're doing that. Yeah. The other right. type of the conversation is just to start with the conversation. Mm. It's just saying, okay, um, we need to help each other. We need to raise the standards of each other and everything. And we all depend on each other. You know, if the economies goes down, then you know there are no more businesses. You can't sell your stuff. You can't so. We all depend on each other. And I think COVID really uh, demonstrated that. It demonstrated um, uh, interdependence mm. and uh, that we all really very pragmatically depend on each other. So it's not one against the other. It's one with the other. And then, yeah. so how can we help each other? Because if we do that, everyone's going to thrive. This is a, quite a body of thought these days around social purpose of a business and how people now are starting to expect more from business. And and I say this from a market research point of view, which, which is where I come from, that consumer sentiment now, there, there are certain segments now and, and waves of feeling about products where people do examine you know the the, the uh, provenance of a product and you know what what are the values you know do they hire diversely uh, do do they use sustainable ingredients all of those kind of things I just personally I've, I I think that uh, you cannot overestimate what people are feeling now about that I think that um, that will be the, the big business of the future. I think the, the big brands in the future, in the next 15 to 20 years, will be the one that will be highly transparent, actually. Mm. 
and, and transparency saying, is a good word. Mm. Yeah, I think transparency. And there's something to said about trust too. There's a great book I read mm. a few years ago, but maybe four or five years ago now. It's called The Speed of Trust uh, by Coley. And, right. uh, and it, it, it's a case for trusting each other in business. Um, because if you do that, if you establish those relations of trust in the business, then you shorten um, the development cycles, um, the profit, profitability is higher. Uh, so there are a number of very uh, pragmatic and business outcomes that you, know, you really have to look at. Um, but if you add that trust in, uh, in the relationship with your customer, um, it, it gets really, really interesting. So I, I met an entrepreneur, he's a friend of mine. So he has a company that does, he, he tries to do good. He's really also focused on the triple bottom line. And he started his company by doing what a lot of other entrepreneurs do, which is a lot of advertising, putting their brand up there. And, and you know, advertising, even though you're, you can be quite good at it, is still expensive. Yeah. Um, so he was measuring, he's a, a good data person, so he was measuring the cost of acquisition. And then because of the value of the company, they started to realize that people were buying and then referring each other and building a community. Mm-hmm. And it was more effective and cheaper and more transparent to hire a community manager that will manage it and, and promote the product through the community than doing the traditional advertising. Hmm. So which you're speaking you, our language here, I'm gonna yeah, tell you, Philip. I, I find that fascinating. Like yeah. it, there's a business model for pushing and selling more, more, more and doing more and outspending your competition. I've seen a lot of that lately, like you know, with building funnels and stuff like that. Yeah. The one who's gonna outspend your competition is gonna win, you know. Uh, that's one model, but there's another mm. model which is, okay, guys, this is what we're trying to achieve. This is what we're trying to do. We need your help. If you buy our product, this is where we want to go. And it's, it's a two-way thing. So mm. you know, we're going to help you because we have better product and services and, and better impact. But you need to help us too. And people, usually, if there is that level of trust and transparency, a lot of people are very keen to do so. Yeah, we, we actually, we're, we're big advocates of, of the, if you like, brand community. There's all sorts of different names for well, them. There's the difference between a, a transaction and a relationship. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 What, what, what are you trying to achieve? Do you just want a transaction? Do you want to treat someone like a statistic mm. or do you want to treat them like a person? It's yeah. very interesting. So they are like very big brands and I want to come back to Apple again. Um, sometimes I have a big question about their future because I think they're moving more into this transaction space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're losing a bit the, the, the vibe of, um, you know, think different and all that, you know, Steve Jobs type of thinking. You don't see that much now. Um, I actually think you're right. And I th- this is where my personal opinion is that smaller businesses have a really exciting opportunity here because the bigger guys and the bigger they seem to get the more they seem to separate from us the consumers as Mm -hmm. that community so smaller businesses do actually have a really exciting opportunity to build that relationship that the bigger guys just for whatever reason either don't have the mechanisms anymore or whatever it is 
I'm not sure it's about mechanism because, you know, Apple is a big company. They have a few small people in there. I think it's it's um, lack of direction from the top or lack of drive. Yeah. Uh, they have a model that works and it keeps mm. working despite COVID and other things. So it's why change, you know, mm. uh, we can still push and scale and, and, you know, have very high profit margin and we're, we're good. But long term, I'm really, I have a very, very big question mark uh, above my head. Like, I don't, I don't see exactly where they're going with that model in particular, because their audience is changing. Yeah. And, and yeah, there's a lot of people that are growing consciousness out there. And I'm not sure that the product that they'll have today will be suitable for the audience of tomorrow. Yeah, no, I think you're. I think you're right, and it's it's interesting, even coming from your design perspective. That and what I really love about what you're doing here is that you're adding this environmental, this consciousness mm-hmm. to a design. So rather than just being, which of course was how Apple got big, was having beautiful design. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. But but it's the consciousness level now that's fascinating and really exciting, actually. Yeah, and I think there will be a very big place for conscious business in the, in the future. And, and it doesn't have to be perfect, by the way. It's, uh, you know, you don't have to have the product that is, you know, 100%, you know, carbon neutral and, and compostable and everything. You can just say, okay, this is what we're trying to do. And we yeah. haven't found the right material yet. Uh, we haven't found the right balance, but we keep striving for it and we keep, you know, and keep us honest. If you know something we don't know, please communicate, and we'll, we'll you know, we'll do the work. Um, Patagonia is a great brand for that. You know, it's, 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 you know, they acknowledge that you know some of their product is not as good as maybe they thought they should be, or you know, um, but they say this is how it is, and we still need to wear stuff. So it's um, yeah, um, this is the best we can do, and at least they are long lasting and. And, you know, they have, you know, a number of advantages already versus their competitors. Um, but they are very, I think there's a case for transparency and for building the community uh, around your brand. Just that statement you said there about, you know, we're trying, we're not perfect, we're, mm-hmm. we're doing our best and, and let us know if there's something else out there that we don't know about it. OMG, really? If, if more people did that in itself, it, that would make a significant, but mean it, but actually mean it. Doctors yeah. have a bunch of words on your text as well, on I, your website, but I love that. I, I agree. And there's something that really puzzles me. I don't know if you have observed that, but I found that so, so hard and difficult to give feedback to a company. Mm. Like it's nearly impossible to get in touch with someone and yep. say, you know, your product is not working. Yeah, it's it, they don't want to hear about it, and I'm, that puzzles me. Like in terms of innovation, there's a, a keynote uh, I have, which the, the title is "Innovation." Innovation is right before your eyes, and mm-hmm. and it is Perfect. like it's right there, but you just yeah. don't want to see it because it's not convenient. You focus on data and stuff, but just go out there and observe your customers. You're gonna learn heaps, and and when. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm really puzzled. There are a few products that I bought recently, and there are a couple of things that didn't work. And I just cannot get into the website. There's no contact form. There's no yeah. give feedback. And, and sometimes you receive a survey, and those surveys, they, they make no sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, it's, you know, oh. you have question is, was the service awesome, wonderful, or fantastic? 
No, yes. that, that was neither one. It, that was terrible. There's, yes. no, there's no room for, it's like, and, and then you receive the, the feedback of the service, like, oh, you know that 97% of our customers Loved find it. that we have a good service? Yeah, exactly. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this is, I mean, if you did that for promoting someone in your, I don't know, maybe someone in that industry would get promoted because of that number, but it doesn't make any sense. It just built frustration with the brand. Yeah. There is a lot of that KPI thinking goes on, Philippe, uh, that, that, again, from a research point of view, when you look at all the different methodologies that are out there, and a lot of them are really just about collecting some numbers. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It's not about engagement with, with the person or, or really getting their feelings. You mm-hmm. get some numbers which go into the spreadsheet, go in the monthly report, Go to your investors and say, you know, we've got, you know, X amount satisfaction score. What is, it, mm-hmm. what is that really saying? And, yeah. and how was the question raised in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> oh no! Don't don't get it started. started. <laughs> really, we are you are talking our language. We just about we 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 will even get a survey sent to us, and we'll just then have a debate for another half an hour on how they could have improved it. And but yeah. again, I see this as a great opportunity for smaller business because yes. for some unknown reason, these other guys have just got into these really bad habits of. Mm. Quite frankly, they're abusing their customers by just mm-hmm. not really caring, mm. and then they don't understand if you find someone else to buy from. I really, I don't get it. Yeah, I, I mean, the lack of feedback is is really detrimental for businesses. And I agree. I think if you're a smart, small to medium company or even a retail place, and you you really find a way to get the feedback. You're going to do very well. And people love, I mean, there are people that's going to whine and everything. That's, you know, there are 3% of the population that's going to say that everything was wrong and all. But if you discard that, you know, um, population and just listen to the rest, people are very happy to give you feedback. Mm. Um, if you're retail and, and you know, you try to serve your customers and you get feedback from all of them that will go in the store and, and won't buy anything and, and, you know, I, I understand there's effort there, but there's so much data and so much feeling that you can get from them. You can improve your business nearly overnight. And it's just right there. You don't need to do anything. Like it's, you need to reinvent the wheel. You need to, you know, it's not that expensive. You know, it's actually really quite simple. We've forgotten yeah. how to treat people like people, like humans, yeah. like yeah. we like to be treated. So exactly. if you want to be treated with respect, you know, like I, I, I use this a bit now as like, you know, my mother told me to say please and thank you and, and have a conversation, have, you know, have mm-hmm. feelings about that. And But we, for some unknown reason we have this roadblock for some, if we, with business, we think we have to be formalised, and I think to a degree, market research industry has shot itself in the foot with this because it's made it quite formalised. But it just doesn't have to be. I think there's a place for both. Like I don't mind having data about an industry, and and I think it's interesting. But I love sure. going out there and observing people, and that's something I said. I did, I did a keynote a few months ago, and and. Um, at the end, I had a question. It's like, okay, well, we do digital stuff. So um, how do we, you know, we, we look at the data. Like if we open the website, then we know that after two seconds, you're going to look there. 
or you're going to press that button and everything. And I said, I said, this is fantastic. Get the data. Mm. I'm not saying you shouldn't get the data. Mm. I'm saying go out there and look at the face of your customer where when they are opening your browser and your, your website for the yeah. first time. The data mm. will never, ever show you the, someone that is frowning when you just yes. see the first page, like not trying to understand what what is going yeah. on on that website. Yeah, like, sorry. And it, I'm and it takes you, you know, two, three, four, five seconds to understand the flow. Yes. Where you need to put your intention. Of course, you have the data in terms of numbering interaction, but you don't have the human aspect of that. And if you had the opportunity just to go out there and meet, I don't know, 20, 50 people and look at yep. their face, I asked the question, what was your first impression? Like, I, I saw you were frowning. It's like, well, you know, you have 10 buttons on the homepage above the fold. You know, it's too much. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm confused. There are so many messages. It's like, you know, you have a title with like seven different tabs and everything. This is too much. I, I just came here to buy a pair of socks. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't understand. It's like, you Sound, know. Sounds like a true bloke going into a shop. <laughs> Yeah, so it's probably it's, a little, probably a little like you. Uh, you know, we're talking about Apple. It's like the original Apple versus Microsoft because Apple yeah. made it friendly yeah. and simple, and Microsoft was designed by engineers and yeah. for engineers and looked like it. And and that was a key difference in the personality of the Apple brand that came through. Mm. I think. Yeah, there's a case for simplicity. That's something that I really love in design. Like, uh, um, mm. I'm not sure if I can have um, a name for my style or anything because you know you, um, I'm not sure what that could be. But simplicity. Well, you, you give it one, Philippe. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a, a label. <laughs> French, maybe. Uh, but there is uh, or elegant. I think I had that as a yes. Case. That's a good word. Uh, but there is a case for simplicity, and simplicity, by the way, is, is really hard to get to. Yes. You really need to get the extra mile to go there. And I, I could go on, on on so many case studies where before that was simple, that was really, really complex and not working. Um, but that's if you push through that deep, then you get to simplicity. Um, but it's simplicity has beauty in itself because then people really get intuitively where you're heading and what the product yeah. is doing. So... Uh, one, one of my product, um, it's called Cable Stub. It's a cable management device that helps you organize your cables on your desk. I was selling right. that at the market. And many times, and that was so funny, many times you have people approaching the booth and explaining to their friend what the product will do. <laughs> now that's cool. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, look at that. That product will do that. that. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, okay. So they, they got it. So the design is kind of a point of sale by itself yeah. because it's self-explanatory. Yeah. And I love that's that. That's powerful. And that's yeah. good design. Yeah. For me, yeah. And, and then strangely, by the way, uh, strangely enough, the, the good design is transparent because you notice bad design because it creates pain and frustration. But good design, usually you don't quite notice it. It's like it's, it's working. You know, when you have a, I don't know, if you have, 10 years back, you know, you had an iPhone for the first time and you just pick a phone and then browse the internet and, and open a couple of apps. And it's kind of transparent and the design, is, it's, um, it just works. Yeah. I was very interested in your 
excellent TED talk, which I would recommend to any of our listeners to, to uh, follow up. You mentioned uh, that 80% of the impact of, of a new product is at the design stage, if that's correct, if I yep. remember that correctly. So when you're talking about things like the, uh, the social impacts and sustainable impacts, uh, can you explore this a, a bit more about how you go about this? Yeah, um, it's very hard to course correct something once it's out there. Um, so you go shopping, everyone uses disposable plastic bags, and then you know we do that for decades. That's someone made a decision at some point that that was a good idea because that was you know cheaper, faster, stronger, or you know whatever the case yeah. was at the time, without looking at the externalities or the impact or the implications long term. Right. Imagine that someone made the case for, okay, this is a very bad idea long-term. Mm. Uh, we're going to pay a very high price in 20 years, so not we're going to do that. We're going to go back to a drawing board, and we're going to think that over and over again until we have something that works better. Mm. That's, that's, that's why I'm, I am in design. Okay. It's because all those decisions you make at that stage will impact things further down the track. And the impact could be tremendous. Like if you sell product that make millions of copies, um, if you can do less parts, if you can do part that can be recycled, if you can do a product that can be dismantled easily, all that matters. And you cannot do that after the fact. It's very hard. Like I'll give you a story. I had I had a laptop, and my laptop had um, a dysfunction or something that didn't work. Mm-hmm. And I went to a repair shop, and you cannot repair the laptop. It's by design. Yeah. Yeah. By design, you cannot change the the you know, the part because it's part of the motherboard, and then you need to. And if you were to do that, it costs like super super high money, and it's as much as buying a new one. Yeah. And that's by design. There's nothing wrong, by mm. the way, with my laptop. Uh, it's mm. like it still works. Mm. And the screen works, the keyboard works, the memory works, the you know, hard, um, hard disk works. So I have 99% of that thing that works. And there's one thing that doesn't work and I cannot change it because it's designed this way. Yeah. That gets me now. Like really. Oh, yeah. But that's now normal. I mean, you, you, you ask any, like ask my mother who bought an iron in, you know, 1950 yeah. and it still <laughs> works. And then you think you feel sorry for you. So you go and buy her a new iron. In, yeah. in nineteen in twenty ten, for example. Mm-hmm. It lasted a year or two and then she tossed it. Yeah. So, you know, yet her nineteen fifties one still works. And this is a this is across the board with everything yeah. we're doing. So what have we what do we do wrong? We must have there must have been a stage in history where we decided disposable was better than repair. I think for me it, it um so I have a, a bit of a view on that. So that's gonna push up in areas where maybe you haven't expected that. But for me, the root of that is a principle in economics called externalities. Yeah. There's some point uh, where that was about 60 years ago, we said, well, if you produce stuff and then we trash the planet, trashing the planet is externalities. It's not part of my business, so I don't care. Yeah. And that's why we're in this, this situation today because you don't pay for externalities. And it doesn't mean that they don't exist. They do exist. And someone will have to pay eventually for it. And yes. you pay by 
pandemics, maybe you pay by, I don't know, but we're going to pay for it. Yeah. And it's going to cost it like much, much more money than doing the right thing in the first place. So that's why I'm, I'm super optimistic. And it's because of the 80% of impact set at the design stage. So we need to take our time to design the right product and try to anticipate and measure the impact. And if we do that well, then, you know, down the, down the, the track, down the flow, uh, it's going to be, you know, better. And, and this might come back to your analogy that, or the, the thought process that you have that Apple has, you know, some limitations in its business model because they literally keep producing a new model every year and, and the fans rush and queue at, the, yeah. queue at the store to go and get the latest and I still don't know, well, what happens to the old one that still well and truly works? Hmm. It's this disposable society that we've, God, that's just doing, that's what's doing us undone. So we've got a lot of work to do to change yeah, we do. What but is I now think, cultural? Yeah, I think it's cultural, but I also think that if you offer a different business model, a different product slash business service, then you, there are opportunities out there. Mm. You, you, you know, you, today you can buy a jean, but you can so um, can also rent one. There are companies yeah. that not that they refuse, so to speak, to sell you a jean. So what you have, you pay. I can't remember if it's a membership or something like this, but you pay some upfront fee. And then one or two years later down the track, you return the gene and you get a new one for another small fee. Yeah. And the company takes the gene and, and recycle the material and it turns back into another gene. Um, so there are new models that are out there. The, the question is when one is going to tip over the other, that I don't really know. The only thing I know is that if I keep working towards you know, one way, then the yeah. other way we eventually um, lessen. Yes. No, you're, you're right. We just, we have to, and I'm, ho I'm with you, I'm hoping that this opportunity for us to all take a breath through COVID mm -hmm. is going to make us think about the long-term impacts because I hate to be, I'm not being a pessimist, but we're in for, this, this won't be the last global event that's going mm -hmm. to, you know, affect us and and need us to pivot and change whatever we're doing. So, it, yeah. It, it must be hard now, Philippe, for designers at this stage, given the all the uncertainties when you're embarking at things at this stage, that you want to have the right impact, you know, that, that create that 80% right mm -hmm. now. To do that, do you have any tips on what budding on, entrepreneurs and de designers should be thinking about in, in this turmoil? I will. I will come back to mindset. You know, right. by all means, change your mindset. If you live in fear, you're not going to do well. It's very yeah. hard to take good decisions in fear. It just yeah. doesn't work. Um, so if you have any, I know this is challenging times, and and you know the survival instinct will gonna want to take over and 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 run you know the business so to speak or the show. Um, but if you can take any time to practice mindfulness, come back to your own senses, um, give your mind space so that you can just relax, mm. see things for just what they are, and then trying to make decisions from that perspective. 
if you're in any business, there will be opportunities. And I understand that some businesses are more impacting than others. Like you have a retail shop and you're in Melbourne and you're in lockdown. Yeah. That's, that's a very big issue. That's, that's something else. Yeah. But then again, there are also, I'm sure there are opportunities there too. Um, there are probably ways to connect with your customers. There are probably ways to engage with them. And some do that very well through digital, you know, like social media and everything. So they still have the conversation with their customer. They still offer things. They still, so there are ways to do stuff. But the, again, the mindset is the key thing. Yeah. If you have a negative, pessimistic mindset and, and you think it's all doom and gloom, um, and it may like it may, the perception could be this. I understand that it's it's hard for everyone, and at the same time, if you conquer that fear, if you conquer that state of mind of anxiety and despair sometimes, um, and try to relook for what can you do, what's in your power to do today, you will find opportunities. You will find ways to connect with people and serve people differently. Yeah, very very good advice. Um, Yes, because you mentioned, I think it was in your TED talk about exactly that, about doom and gloom, that instead of going yeah. down that path, but uh, because people will be thinking, look, I'm, I'm just one person. I might be one small business. What sort of impact can I have? You know, uh, you know how, how on earth are my yeah. customers going to be thinking of me at this time when they've got all this other stuff going on? But I really liked what you said about it doesn't matter how small the change you make, mm -hmm. at least you make it yeah. and, and start. And, and you don't really know the ripple effects. I think yeah. if I come back to the TEDx talk that I did, yes. the whole intention of that talk is everyone can have an impact, absolutely yeah. everyone, and you don't know how far that impact is going to go. Because yeah. the, the story about, you know, the emotional story in my TED talk is all yes, about yes. that is it's all about having an impact in a place where I had no idea I had an impact in the first mm. place. Yeah. And it's all about the intention. It's not about, you know, me or no, it's not about that. It's not even about the story. It's about if you do things out there and if you have the intention to serve your audience, to serve your customers and, you know, help them grow and serve them meaningfully today, you will have an impact and customers yes. will remember you. And I, I, I can tell you, I, I mean, I have a conversation with entrepreneurs and customers. Customers do make the difference today between business that just want to trade and take their money and other business that are caring. Mm. Mm. And you can be still making transactions and care for your customers, by the way. It's not exclusive. Exactly. Um, but they can perceive the difference of intention and they will remember that. I think people, uh, I think a lot of business people underestimate that and thinking about uh, back to the lockdown here and uh, that, and heaven forbid, but in case there was a second wave of, of, of mm -hmm. any sort of intensity in, here in New Zealand as well, the thing to keep in mind is that in the first wave, a lot of businesses just stopped communicating with customers. Yeah. I, they, the, 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 you know, it comes back to mindset, but they thought, well, okay, everything's shut down, so we won't talk to people anymore. When mm -hmm. that is exactly the time you should be, and some of the, and, and we're seeing, 
articles now from some smart people saying, look, during that time, and even if your doors are shut, keep talking to people because the digital means are there to do it. Tell them what you're doing behind the scenes and uh, or ask what what can we do next time when when we open up again, all of that sort of thing. And the key is, though, it's not too late if you didn't communicate because that's the past tense. You just need to learn the lessons from that and that is to to keep communicating now. I, I 100% agree. Uh, I've seen that with a friend of a friend who has a restaurant right. and he was forced to shut down, which is very unfortunate when you have people mm. and you know, wait, waiters and all that. So you have to fire a number of people in your team. <clears throat> but then he's been just trying to you know, go out and just walk down the street and talk to the customers and explain to some of the customers that you know, they cannot open again. And then the customers say, well, we still need to eat. And so can you cook for us or can you, you know, it's yeah. like, um, that was at the time of the beginning of the lockdown where people were hoarding pretty much everything here in Melbourne yes. <laughs> and, and, and they couldn't even get pasta. And, and so the feedback was, we can't eat. And the guy said, I can make pasta in my restaurant. That's, that's a no brainer. Yeah. And he started making pasta and serving his community. And this, the, so the benefit for the restaurant is that they have a kitchen, the kitchen is working. And, and they serve the audience and their community. I'm sure that when the restaurant will open again, people will remember that. They will remember they will. The, the person that will that was helping them with cheap meals, very simple stuff, uh, affordable meals, uh, affordable pasta, you know, homemade, uh, locally yeah. and everything. And they did that because they wanted to serve the audience. Yeah. And so that's, again, it's built into mindset. It's, it's about building that relationship, isn't yeah. it? Because, yeah. you know, I, I, for some unknown reason, and it still confuses me a bit, to be honest, is that we wouldn't treat a friend or a potential friend as badly as we treat the customers that actually keep us employed and a roof over our heads. So I'm, you know, when you, when you think of it as simply as that, mm. it's just teaching, treating people. Yeah. Uh, with with a level of respect and and actually like just like the, those human. small yeah. connections have yeah. big yeah. impacts. I think, Huge. as you've said, <laughs> Philippe, small change equals big impact. Yeah, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah, and, and again, if you come back to opportunities, um, if you're small to medium business, then it's a fantastic opportunity to really yeah rebuild your business again and even, you know, expand and thrive. Yeah. And that's a really good place to wrap this up, Philippe. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, so actually now, how, what's the best way of people getting in touch with you? We will put uh, links, of course, in the show notes. But if you've got a website or is LinkedIn the best place to reach out to you? I'm currently rebuilding my website. So we're going to um, lead people to LinkedIn for now. Yep. Perfect. And, uh, and maybe a link to the TEDx if you if they want to know yeah. what oh, impact. It's, worthwhile. it's a lovely, lovely um, sh- presentation to watch. It's just got so much emotion in it and and it's a beautiful story. So I'm not going to give away anything. Yeah. I want people to go and have a listen because it's, it's lovely and you present it so beautifully and so heartfelt, which is clearly and I love way we I really love what you're doing with the passion that you're clearly doing it with mm. this idea of combining the the 
social, environmental impacts with everything that we do moving forward is such a critical space for us to all go to. So mm. thank you, Philippe. Well, thank, thank you for this much. conversation. That was lovely, like really. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your network, like and subscribe so you don't miss out on the next instalment of the innovation journey.